Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, June 29th, 2011. Tomorrow is the three-year anniversary of Pirate Christian Radio. Wow. (laughs) Just the thought of it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we do the discernment work. Open up our Bibles and see if what people are saying is actually sound biblical and Christian doctrine, or if it's... uh, Well, a twisting of God's Word. And one of the ways in which we do that is by featuring good Christian, biblical, expository, Christ-centered preaching. Now, today is uh, Wednesday, and what we're going to do today, we're going to do our light edition of Fighting for the Faith for the week. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to continue listening to the sermon series entitled Peers for Our Transgressions by... Uh, Doctor, uh, the Reverend Doctor Mark Dever, and uh, today's installment is enti- entitled "Condemned Sin," and it's a expository sermon uh, preached on Romans chapter eight, verses one through three. And so the the idea here is this: is that in these good sermons, in these good lectures, in this good teaching that we offer many times uh, during our um, light editions of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, I, 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 there's really no need for me to interrupt. From time to time, I do, you know, just to highlight particular things. But this is to train you, help train you, and to hear so that you can hear what does good expository, Christ-centered, gospel-focused, uh, you know, preaching sound like. Um, you know, we we do a lot of deconstructing of really awful and bad sermons uh, that are done, at, you know, in the name of evangelism at so-called seeker-driven churches. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, these guys aren't preaching sound doctrine, and uh, they're twisting and mangling God's words in many, many different ways. And uh, as a result of it, you know, we've got to do the cleanup work uh, it, it, for the sake of the people that are in those congregations. Uh, and for the sake of uh, Christianity, the greater body of Christ. 
And, and so he, rather than doing a negative, we do a positive from time to time. And uh, and so that's what we're going to do here. So without any further ado, here is uh, the first part. And we'll take a break mid, about midway through. Here's the first part of uh, a, a fantastic sermon uh, from the Pierce for Our Transgression pierced for our transgressions sermon series entitled condemned sin here's the reverend dr mark dever the world needs new control of nature and society and is told that the bible is verbally inerrant it needs a means of composing class strife and is told to believe in the substitutionary atonement. It needs faith in the divine presence in human affairs. And is told it must accept the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. That's just a little bit of a kind of screed of Shaler Matthews, who was the dean of the Divinity School at the University of Chicago in the last century. And he was complaining about the way some Christians, in the face of very pressing and real needs in the world, would champion what he thought were theological obscurities of no help to anyone. Why insist on such old ideas, he was saying, in the face of very real needs? Why insist on such ideas that are alien to the present world, that don't mean anything to people today? Uh, take just one of them that he mentioned. Take substitutionary atonement, for example. Why insist on something, he's asking? Why insist on something that seems to be peripheral to our lives today? And maybe even to the message of Scripture itself, at least as some scholars suggest. Is it overkill to have a series of sermons on substitutionary atonement? A series stretching from Christmas to Easter? Where every Sunday our point is the same thing, that Jesus died as a substitute for sinners? Well, many people today might wonder that. After all, doesn't the Bible use other images about the atonement? Economic images of redemption, military images of victory, images of freedom and liberation? Some New Testament scholars today go even so far as to suggest that Christ actually being a bodily substitute on the cross, enduring God's wrath in our place, is just a, a secondary kind of teaching in the New Testament, if even that. Certainly doctrines are variously important. So, for example, fasting is less central to Christianity than the idea of the Incarnation. What kind of instruments we use while we sing is less important than the Lord's Supper. Looking through scriptures, I think we have found in this series that the, the concept of substitution was indeed central to what God has been do, doing with fallen humanity. If you've been around construction very much, you notice that as they're building things, that the ends the building is to be used for are not always obvious when they're beginning to put things up, unless you're very familiar with it. But as you get familiar with it, you see again and again that they do the same kind of things. They'll lay in plumbing. They'll lay in wiring and cables for electricity and Internet. 
They'll lay in ductwork for heating and cooling. And they'll do all this long before the walls are in place and the building takes shape. And then finally, the walls are in place, the building takes shape. All this effort is made to install that which won't be coming to its primary use for quite some time, for weeks or even months in the future. Well, so we've seen in the Old Testament. God was building the house of Israel as one magnificent preview and pointer to Jesus Christ. In the captivity of Israel and Egypt, we see a picture of our own bondage to sin, our enslavement to sin writ large. And it is only God who could deliver us. And so we see a drama where God acts, where he acts to be our liberator. As part of it, we saw how there would be a lamb without blemish that would be sacrificed for the people, while others, those for whom lambs were not sacrificed, were killed. We saw in Leviticus that there were other sacrifices set up. We saw the Day of Atonement, where one animal was sacrificed and another banished into the wilderness to bear the sins of the people, symbolically. In Isaiah, we saw the servant foreseen, called to suffer, to bear the sins of many. Friends, these practices and prophecies were planted deeply in the people of Israel for centuries. They were always there displaying great truths about the holiness of God, about his kindness and his tender mercies. The association of death with forgiveness. The age-old tension of justice and mercy was finally to be resolved at the cross. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for the sins of his people plucked the deepest cord that resounded with the ancient teachings, symbols, images that God had implanted in Israel from the very beginning. The teaching of Jesus Christ explained his own life and death in these substitutionary terms. He used the image of a lamb, the image of bearing sins, of the suffering servant, of the high priest, of the temple, and of the sacrifice. How are we to understand all these? By the biblical teaching that is not so much merely an image, one among a number, as it is the thing itself, the thing imaged. Jesus died in my place. In my place. Condemned he stood. Jesus died as a substitute taking on the death that we have deserved for our sins. And he taught his disciples this. So then, was substitution simply background for one image of the atonement, or was it central to the atonement, and therefore to all Christian faith and life? Last time we considered the objections that some have about there being no ethical implications of substitutionary atonement. That is, it, it doesn't make any difference in our own lives, it's suggested. It's all God being satisfied, God's wrath being met by God's own sacrifice of God's own son, God's own self. But as we considered it last week, we saw, well, no, that's not the case. There are implications for how we live to this understanding of the cross. Well, this morning we come to a later section in Paul's letter to the Romans where he is talking about the newness of life that we have in Christ. And it's interesting to me that when he comes to think about our struggle with sin and how we're called to live by the Spirit, at the very center of Paul's thinking is the death of Jesus Christ 
in our place for our sins. That's what Paul is talking about in the opening verses of chapter 8. And that's our text for this morning. Romans chapter 8, those opening verses. Let's, let's turn there. Romans chapter 8. And we'll read the first four verses. You'll find that passage on page 1118 in the Bibles presented, provided here in the West Hall. 1118. And on page 1183 in the Bibles provided here in the main hall. Romans 8, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Now it's clear from that last verse there, verse 4, that God wants us to have transformed lives. Paul has been talking about this in the letter since chapter 6. Having made our need for salvation clear in chapter 1, 18, through chapter 3, verse 20. So chapters 1, 2, 3 in Romans make our need for salvation very clear. And then the way of salvation by faith in Christ, clear in the rest of chapter 3 and in chapters 4 and 5. In chapter 6, Paul turns to speak of the new life that we have if we're in Christ. That is, if we become Christians. He's made it clear that our identification with Christ now means that our old self, our flesh, was crucified with Christ so that sin is now no longer our master. We are therefore no longer slaves to sin, but rather, he uses the image, we are slaves to God. It's true, he says, that the law alone could never bring about this freedom. Indeed, our own flesh rejects the law. So in our flesh, the law alone just seemed to bring out our desires to disobey God. There is a struggle going on in this life, he says, because we are made in God's image, but we're under the curse. We are in Adam. But now, becoming a Christian, we become in Christ. And in Christ, we've been redeemed. And so we've been released from bondage to the law and bondage to sin and death. So that now, Paul says, we serve, he says this in chapter 7, verse 6, we serve in the new way of the Spirit. In these first few verses of chapter 8, we learn some important things about this transformation that has taken place in us as Christians. But notice first, we have to begin here if we're going to understand this, That this transformation doesn't come fundamentally by our understanding and obedience. If you're taking notes, there are two basic points, and this is point number one. This transformation doesn't come fundamentally by our understanding or our obedience. Look there at the first part of verse 3. Paul mentions in verse 2 our being in bondage to sin and death. And then at the beginning of verse 3, we see this. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. Paul is is clear here that 
the change that we need in our life and our status before God will not come about through the law. He says, for what the law was powerless to do. It it wasn't able to do. It, It wasn't up to it. It was impossible for the law to do it. Why? Well, he goes on to say, in that it was weakened. It it was as if it were sick. It was having its limitations exposed. It was helpless. Why? Well, he says, because of our sinful nature, or literally because of our flesh. Not merely meaning our, our physical bodies, which is why the NIV chooses to translate it as sinful natures, but meaning our fallen human nature. It was because of our fallen human nature that the law was so powerless. Moses' law, the moral law of God it expressed, doesn't save. It doesn't save sinners. It can't. Paul says here it was weakened in its effect because unregenerate people can't keep it. He said that in chapter 7. Sin and death result from fallen people's encounter with God's law, not salvation. You can never save yourself By your own actions. You can never save yourself by your own actions. Christianity does not give us a spiritual do-it-yourself kit. That's not what we're provided with in the Bible or in the Christian gospel. My friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, what would you say is the best change you've ever experienced in your life? Think for a moment. Maybe it was a new job, a new home, a new diet, a new relationship, a new way to think. What's the best change you've ever experienced? My guess is, even with that change, you still find yourself disappointing even your own expectations. Is that the case? Have you ever wondered why that's the case? What do you do with your knowledge of your own moral failures? Christianity is not a spiritual resource center for you to grab stuff and make a perfect life for yourself here or build a paradise in this world. We understand that Jesus Christ and his power is the only thing that can finally change us change our lives, and change this world. One thing that we Christians have in common, whether we're American or African, from Britain or the Caribbean, is our utter spiritual helplessness. No racial, no political, no other demographic categories are more telling and more revealing of our true identity than to say that we are sinners before our holy creator God. As Christians, we realize that our salvation must come from outside of ourselves. It's not going to come from inside of us. It must come from outside even our work. Now, that that has some teeth here in D.C. Friends, your career will not be that thing that you should finally live for. We can't finally put our hopes in it. It will end before you do. You need to prepare yourself for that day. You are more than your job. 
You are made in the image of God. For example, you can't save others no matter how much you love them. You see your own limitations even in that? You can't save your own family members. You can't save your parents. You can't save your siblings. You can't save even your children. You can't even save yourself. Have you realized this limitation? You realize, realize my, my Christian brother or sister, you haven't obeyed yourself into God's good graces. It doesn't work like that. You can't merely educate yourself to a better life. Education can achieve some limited goods, but it, it certainly hasn't been responsible for the transformation in our hearts that we have known and experienced if we're Christians. And this is so important for us to agree on that we even say in our church's statement of faith that salvation comes to us, quote, not in consideration of any works of righteousness which we have done, not in consideration of any works of righteousness which we have done. So our acts, our knowledge will never bring about the great change that everyone needs. Even the best teaching alone will not give life. That's point one. That's all of point one. You've got to get point one. If you try to mix any of the rest of what I'm going to say with a thought that, you know, really I kind of save myself, then you won't understand it. You won't see what Paul's talking about here. Point two. We have to see this if we're going to understand what Paul says about transformation of life that he's describing in this section of Romans. Okay, so if, if our actions don't cause the transformation of Christian conversion, what does? And we see here that this, this is number two, this transformation comes by God's action. Transformation, this transformation comes by God's action. Our penalty is paid. Sinners are justified. Look at verse 1. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we had no visitors with us, if we were just Christians, I could stand here and lovingly and joyfully reread that verse for 60 minutes and we would have a great time this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God for his kindness to us. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now in order to appreciate this, we've got to remind ourselves that we owed our whole lives to God. And yet we all, by nature and by choice, have spent our lives for ourselves. This is true. We have sinned against God, and because God is just and good and fair, He is committed to punish us for our sins. And this will mean our final condemnation. Jesus spoke about the wrath of God even now hanging over all of those who reject Him. That's why this is such good news. Now, He says, we can know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That now is referencing the fact that the ages have changed with the coming of Christ, and that his death on the cross is for us. The mystery hidden from ages past 
as Paul says elsewhere, has been revealed here in Christ, his death on the cross as a substitute for us. The charges against us have been dropped because Jesus Christ has been condemned for us in our place. Our rap is paid. All of us who are in Christ know that our penalty has been expelled because it's been fully paid. Our penalty no longer haunts us because Christ has taken it and paid it fully. And notice whose penalty he says it is. Jesus has justified all of those, we read here, who are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, as Paul wrote to the Galatians, we know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. To be in Christ is to share in the suffering, kingdom, and patient endurance that John said we have in Jesus. Paul had said this in his letter to the Romans back in chapter 6. He said, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Being in Christ means belonging to all other Christians. We glory in Christ. We work together in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. We are given grace in Christ. We live in Him, and if we're Christians, we will die in Him. All God's promises and all our hopes are rolled up together in Christ. We are indwelt by His Spirit. We live for the praise of His name. This is something of what it means to be in Christ. Now, if you are one of those, then you can know that for you, now, there is no condemnation. My non-Christian friend, what this means for you is that if you are outside of Christ, and that's what it means, as I understand, to be a non-Christian, if that's confusing to you, I'd love to talk to you about that at the door. I'll be standing back there just a little bit after the service is over. But if you are outside of Christ, then you are laid open. You are liable to God's condemning of you for your sins. In fact, even now you could say that your sins call out to God to be just. To take vengeance against you for your sins. Now, I wonder if that sounds extreme to you. I wonder if that makes you think that, well, this is a strange and even awful church. I never want to hear a message like that again. Well, friend, if you don't mind me asking you, how bad do you think your sins need to be before God would condemn you for them? I'll tell you my experience, if I know anything of my own heart in conversations with friends, the answer to that is generally just a little bit worse than mine have been. But God is a good God. He's not tied to the low standards of your sin or mine. He is perfectly just and righteous and holy. My Christian friends, Jesus has been our ransom, our justifier. On the last day, he will divide us into two groups. Jesus said in Matthew 25, there will be sheep and there will be goats. Now, it may be important to some in this life that it is an old sheep 
or a female sheep, or that it's a married goat, or an empty nester goat. But I promise you on that day, the only division that will matter is the division between the sheep and the goats, between those who are not condemned and those who are. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in the fact that if we are in Christ, we have now no condemnation. Relish that fact. Rejoice when you're at work. Rejoice at home. If you can learn to rejoice in this fact, it will do you more good than learning 100 evangelistic gospel presentations. Learn to rejoice in the fact that God has brought you no condemnation in Christ. Praise God for the joy that gives us, for the truth of it, knowing that our penalty is paid in Christ, and that there is now no condemnation. Like I say, I would like to just keep repeating that. But Paul has more here. Not only, so if you're in point two, transformation comes by God's action, he talks about it in various ways here. So if you want to take a list under that, number one would be that our penalty is paid, sinners are justified, But there's this other image here, he says, that Paul presents to show what Christians have experienced in this great change. He says God has wrought something else. He says, number two, that our bondage is broken. The spiritually bound are set free. Look at verse 2. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Okay, a moment of technical Bible study talk here. The two laws could either be referring to God's law in its various forms, God's teaching, which acts to some to bring life, and that same message to others to bring death. It's one way you could understand that. Or it could simply be an image that Paul uses for a principle or way of life. Either way, that the spirit and sin both pull on us, sin continually in one direction, the Spirit of God and His Word, the other. One pulls to a self-centeredness, the other to a God-centeredness. The Spirit's work results in life. The Holy Spirit of God is the only one who can teach God's message liberatingly to us. And that's what Paul says here has happened to the Christians. We have been liberated from a bondage to sin and death. Now, again, if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, this may sound overly dramatic. You may think, well, I have a lot of friends who are Christians who look a lot less liberated than I am. Well, friends, you need to think about what we understand here. We understand that your natural state is to be in bondage to sin. And we know that because that's everyone's natural state. It's everyone's natural state, the natural state of our children, of our best friends, of our worst enemies. It's to be in bondage to sin. We have this in common. Now, I know this may seem incredible to you, but that's not surprising. I know that our own sins are famously invisible to our own gaze. They don't appear to us easily. We turn and try in vain to see things in our own moral shadows. We take them for granted. We're too accustomed to them. I think that's one of the reasons that the first weeks of marriage is often so interesting. You know, when you get two sinners living together all the time, we see each other's problems in a way that no one else has ever been so close so constantly to see them so much. My non-Christian friend, do you realize your bondage to sin? Is, Is this news to you? 
The reason you are alive is to know God. That's why you've been made in His image. Your freedom will not come through being driven to oppose any restraint on your actions, which is what our generation wrongly thinks of freedom as being. But friend, your freedom will come when you're being drawn to find the true purpose of your life. And you're able to experience that in Jesus Christ. That's the freedom. Okay, we're going to pause the sermon right here. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Thanks for calling Saddleback Customer Service. This is Josh. How can I help you today? Yes, I would like the return that Jesus I received from you. I heard there was a 60-day return policy. Yes, sir, there is. But can I ask you why you want to return Jesus? Well, I was told if I received Jesus, he'd fix all my problems. And quite honestly, I'm not satisfied with this Jesus. Sir, what is your Jesus doing right now? Nothing. He just sits there. Have you taken time to feed your Jesus? Well, I went to church for the preaching, but nothing has happened. Sir, if you read the fine print on the warranty, you'll see that you are responsible for feeding, not the church or the pastor. Well, can I exchange this Jesus for another? Sir, what kind of Jesus are you looking for? I need the Jesus that forgives sins. You know, changes your life on the inside, helps you overcome the sins of the flesh, never leaves me nor forsakes me, and will take me to heaven when I die. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We don't stock that Jesus here. You'll have to go somewhere else to have that Jesus. Well, I guess I'll just stick with the one I got since I already opened the box. Wonderful, sir. Can I interest you in getting Jesus for your friends and family? Why would I do that? Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. 
You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Warning, all of those pesky doctrines like the penal substitutionary atonement, the virgin birth, they actually are the relevant things. True. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. We're still about 150 people short of our goal of 350 new crew members uh, that'll help us uh, basically make a budget every month. So if you're not already a member of our crew, uh, support us financially, visit our website, and please do so. And, of course, if you would like to uh, make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, let's uh, continue with our sermon entitled Condemned Sin by the Reverend Dr. Mark Dever from Capitol Hill Baptist in uh, Washington, D.C. Here we go. I've often heard the illustration, or even used the illustration, you know, I'm free to go use a piano as a vacuum cleaner, or a vacuum cleaner as a piano. I'm free to do that, if you want to talk about freedom in that sense. But the best freedom is understanding what its purpose is, and using a piano as a piano, a vacuum cleaner as a vacuum cleaner. It's a homely illustration, but it makes the point that true freedom is found in your true purpose, and finding that... Jesus Christ, then, is our liberator. He is the one who frees us from our own sin and stupidities. Here again, we see that we Christians have this common heritage, and we have a common liberator. Whether we are a a new LC in some office on the hill or a senior professor at a university, we recognize that we share the same problem. And we share, we've been found by, the same solution. That's what we have together. Our problem is our sin, and the answer is Jesus Christ. My Christian brothers and sisters, pray that you can see the truth about those you work with. Pray that God give you a love for them and opportunities to share this freeing truth with them. And remember to praise God for delivering you from the bondage of thinking wrongly about what it means to be a woman or a man or wrongly about what it means to be a single person. Wrongly about what it means to be a son or a daughter. Hasn't God been good in delivering us from bondages to sin? From things that have kept us trapped? Brother or sister, think, what, what kind of specific bondage have you been freed from by Christ? When was the last time 
you shared that with one of your Christian brothers and sisters to encourage them? When's the last time you recounted some specific goodnesses of God to you in your life in this way? In the mornings on the elliptical machine, I have been watching a DVD series, uh, Roots. I saw it when it first came out in the 1970s. I'm old enough to have done that. Remember it well. And uh, just this morning, I saw the last episode of Roots, The Next Generation. So I'm all done now. I've seen the whole thing. And my sympathy for what African Americans in our country has gone through has been increased by watching this. And I know even then, it was a subject of great controversy at the time for downplaying the real viciousness and violence of life in the name of entertainment. But even so, as I watched it, I had many thoughts, but one thing I was thinking about with the text this morning is the joy of freedom that the generation when slavery ended and Alex Haley's family, that would be Chicken George and Tom the Blacksmith and those people, the joy that they knew when they were released from bondage and then as the decades rolled by and the younger people don't have that experience, what they have in common is knowing what it means to have been released from bondage. And the joy they share together in that, regardless of how horrendous their other circumstances are. Friends, if we're Christians here this morning, every generation of Christians are those who have known what it means personally to be in bondage to sin and death and to be released by Jesus Christ. We meet this morning as a meeting of former slaves. We are those people who were enslaved by sin and death. And we are those people as Christians who have been brought together in this congregation by the liberation of Jesus Christ. And that brings us a bond and a joy that others can only imagine. It's what we know and experience in our lives as individuals and in our fellowship together. We are those who have had our bondage to sin broken. So we've had our penalty paid, if you're making a list of how God does this. Our penalty is paid. Number two, our bondage is broken. Number three, sin is condemned. Sin is condemned. Look there at verse three. For what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did. God performed it. God achieved it. God did it. And I want to go through this second part of verse 3 slowly, because this is what tells us how God did it, what he did. But we notice first that God did it. It's ultimately God who condemns our sin. We mentioned last week that Paul can describe God's saving, saving action towards us in sort of three tenses. That God has saved us from the penalty of sin. God is saving us from the power of sin. God will save us from the very presence of sin. And you find Paul describing salvation in all three of these tenses. All of these are affected by God and by God alone. So here we see what the law was not able to do. Again, this idea of inability that we thought about earlier. This God did. The news broke this week of an administration official who was caught plagiarizing. I know some of you know him. His actions were discovered by a blogger. An unusual name in a column he had written piqued her curiosity. She did a Google search on the unusual name. And she found that this official had cited a 10-year-old article. Well, had not cited it. It had copied a 10-year-old article for several paragraphs, almost exactly the same, uh, that, the, that the official had turned in as a column under his own name. 
My non-Christian friend, what do you do when you have an accuser? And you know they're right. What do you do when you're caught? That is your future, according to the Bible. You will most certainly and most surely be caught. We Christians are all those who've realized this about ourselves and have asked for God's mercy in Christ. What about you? Oh, friends, Christ has been caught for us. He's our only hope. He is the only one who had clean hands. He had nothing to be caught for. Yet He was caught, given up for us. We Christians are those who, whether we are just married poor or doing okay, whether we have spent years being educated or really not much time at all, we are those who have in common the same hope that God alone can save anyone, that God alone has saved us. You may have come here today having had a pretty rough week. Well, if you're a Christian, always remember that there's more joy in Jesus than in the job. Somebody asked me when I mentioned this to them earlier, did you read that on a bumper sticker? No, I mean, I just, I have to say I've risen to the heights of bumper sticker eloquence here. But it's true. We have no promises in Scripture about the joy you will necessarily find in your job in a fallen world. We do have promises about joy in Jesus. We should remember that. It's not that our jobs aren't good gifts from God, but they're not our ultimate hope. And as a part of this fallen world, they will disappoint. But Jesus is faithful. And he will be seen by us to be so faithful more and more as we go on with him. And if you found that to be true so far, that Jesus' faithful only, faithfulness only increases and it's evidence to you over the years, can you imagine how it's going to look to us in heaven? How faithful Jesus will have shown himself to be to all of the scattered children of God? Friends, how will you deal with sins honestly in your families, in your friendships, apart from Christ? How will you have that combination of, of honesty and forgiveness, of reality and of hope, of, of justice and of mercy, apart from the graciousness that we see here of God in Christ? God has put himself inexplicably on our side. He has been caught for us in his love for us. In Jesus Christ. And so we praise God who is both good and kind to us. As he is condemned for us. And he condemns sin for us. We could never have done that. But that's what he's done. I mentioned in my prayer that for 130 years. God has shown his faithfulness to this church. It was our 130th birthday on Wednesday. Praise God for his faithfulness to this congregation. For 130 years. It has been not a series of remarkable Christians, but a series of God's remarkable faithfulnesses to keep his gospel clear in this place for a century and now a century and 130 years. God has preserved the witness of this congregation to him and to his grace. Oh, friends, I pray that we as a congregation will continue to rely more and more 
on the saving God as we pray to him for yet more people to be saved here and around the world because of the work of this local congregation. God condemned sin. But how did he do that? Well, let's keep looking at verse 3. You see that this involved the incarnation. It says, by sending his son in human likeness. Look again at verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness or the form of sinful man, or literally that's just that sinful flesh. All of the sacrifices that God had instructed his people to do in the Old Testament to to present before him, all of those sacrifices were not sufficient to condemn sin. In order to do this, God the Father must send his son, and his son must come and take on human flesh, blood, bones. He would come to identify with us. He would be incarnate, enfleshed. He would come to be like us, except for our sin. The virgin-born Jesus had no sinful nature, nor did he commit any sin. Sometimes people get a little confused. They think that sin is essential for truly human nature, but it's not. Adam and Eve existed before sin. And if you're a Christian, you will exist after sin. Isn't that a wild and wonderful thought? You will outlast sin. There will be a you, but without the sin factor. How wonderful is that to consider? A truly human, and yet to use the New Testament word, glorified you. A you as you were made to fully bear the image of God. Praise God for that. Well, to bring us that, the eternal Son of God left his Father's throne for an earthly stable to be born in a manger, to grow up as an obedient son to fallible earthly parents. He lived through his childhood years, his adolescent years, his 20s, into his 30s. When having instructed his disciples, he laid down his life for us, being crucified, and was raised bodily from the dead and ascended bodily to heaven and will return bodily. He shared our nature so that he could bear our guilt. That's the Christian faith. Friend, if you're not a Christian, this is our best understanding of Jesus of Nazareth, that he was fully God and fully human. He was fully and truly human, thus he was born, he grew, he hungered and thirsted, he died. And at the same time, he was fully and truly God, thus he was born of a virgin. He had authority over nature, people, even to forgive sins and accept worship. What we reject is the idea of Jesus merely as a prophet or a good teacher. There is simply too much information embedded in the earliest records we have about Jesus, the New Testament, to leave anyone with the idea that he was simply a good teacher. He was either an egomaniac, an egotist of the first order, but this hardly fits with his self-giving teaching and his self-giving actions. Or he was who he said he was. He was the Son of God. Come to be our Savior. And do notice that God didn't send the answer to our sins in some principle, some book dropped from heaven, some life insight, like, for instance, Rhonda Burns' The Secret, or her latest Oprah-endorsed tome, 
the secret gratitude book. Last year, I mentioned The Secret by Rhonda Byrne, a worldwide bestseller in which she tells you the secret, which is that you can get what you want by wanting it. Well, now, just a couple of months ago, I'm sure with no pecuniary motives, the companion volume has been released. For only $20, you can buy The Secret Gratitude Book, which is mostly blank pages in which you can create physical manifestations of your gratitude. That is, you can write down some things you're thankful for. <laughs> now, friends, this is not the kind of thing God did to deal with our sin. We needed more than a trite principle and a blank book. Such things as merely teaching us a new way to view life would be wholly inadequate to the personal nature, the relational nature of sin. Because all sin is not against an abstract law, it's against a personal God. Every sin you have ever committed is a sin against God himself. His nature, his character, and what he made you to be like. And so dealing with it will take a lot more than just you thinking differently. And God knew that. And so God dealt with sin personally. By sending his son, fully God, fully man, to restore our relationship with God. All friends, have you shared this great news with your friends at work? Look, if, if your own life isn't marked by sharing this with your family and friends, then what does it mean for you to say that you love them? If you have this news, you know this, and you're not making sure... They know this. What do you mean when you say you love them? Do you have the humility that Paul uses the sacrifice of Christ to illustrate? Do you begin to see how lavishly God has loved us by sending his own son for us? Now that is lavish love. I love this statement of Jonathan Edwards I came across a few weeks ago about the purpose of the church. And what that has to do with God sending his son. I quote one sentence. The creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end. That the eternal son of God might obtain a spouse. Towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature. And to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love, and grace that was in his heart. And that in this way, God might be glorified. Amen. I'm going to read that again. <laughs> the whole purpose of creation. The creation of the world. It's not for you to retire well. It's not for you to get a better oncologist. It's not for you to make sure you get that job you're angling for, that relationship you're dying for. The, the creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end. That the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature. And to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love and grace that was in his heart. And that in this way... God might be glorified. 
Amen. Friends, this transformation comes about through God's action and only through Christ. The penalty is paid. Our bondage is broken. All this God did through sending his son. Why did God send his son? Well, the purpose of the incarnation was to deal with our sin. That's what we see there in that phrase in verse 3. Look again at verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Now, depending on what translation you're looking at, that those last words may read a little differently. It's literally, and for sin. That is, God sent his son in order to deal with our sin. But the NIV translates it more specifically as to be a sin offering because the Greek phrase was used in the Septuagint to translate the Hebrew idea of a sin offering. And so the NIV is just giving you one step further and they're saying, okay, and this is what that phrase means as an idiom. So the Son was incarnate in order to deal with our sin and to deal with our sin by a sacrifice. God's purpose in the incarnation then included us. He had our sin particularly in view when he sent Jesus. Now, again, if I can just pause my non-Christian friend, are you understanding Jesus better as we walk through this? As we look at verse 3, phrase by phrase, almost word for word, you see Jesus Christ didn't come to give sort of the secret-like tips on life. He didn't come to improve your circumstances here, to make you a more efficient vessel or tool for achieving your own ends. He came to change your ends. He came to change what you're about. He came to change your purpose in life. You may have all the accoutrements of a good and moral person. You, you may be sweeter and kinder and more truthful than I am or another Christian is. But what is the end to which you are sweet and kind and truthful? That is the heart of what Jesus Christ came to change. He came to teach us that we don't live supremely for ourselves, but we live supremely for the God who made us. And that we find our purpose in that. Jesus Christ came to save us. He came to save us from ourselves, from our own self-made disasters of lives. And from himself, from God's own sure wrath against us for our sins. Sins which hurt others and hurt ourselves. Sins which divide and destroy and dishonor the God who made us. That's what he came to save us from. Jesus came to deal with those. Now, we Christians know a continuing war against sin. Christ dealt with the penalty of sin. Its overmastering power is broken in our lives. Yet there is a continuing struggle in our lives until we will finally be made fully like him when we are in his presence in glory. We now struggle with sin. We struggle with sin in the office. We struggle with sin in the store. We struggle with sin on our computer. We struggle with sin in our words. We struggle with sin with those closest to us. We continue to deal with sin in this life. Sometimes we get the mistaken idea that maturity in the Christian life is growing to an understanding of grace so that sins don't matter anymore. Because we know it's all of grace, so these sins don't matter. Other times we think it's a kind of maturity that's the opposite error, really. Thinking of growing to a state of perfection in this life, where we never intentionally sin. Well, both of these errors are dangerous. Watch out for them. On the one hand, thinking that we come to a point where we don't sin in this life could only happen by us, like John Wesley did, redefining sin to be something less than what the Bible says it is. Wesley redefined sin as an intentional disobedience. And he said you can achieve that kind of Christian perfection. 
On the other hand, it dishonors God and his grace to be unconcerned about sin. It does not bring honor to God's grace, especially when we pass this off as Christian maturity. God hates sin. Paul writes to Titus and tells him to resist ungodliness and worldly passions. Have you established relationships with other Christians to help you war against sin? That's one of the reasons you should join a good church. If you're a Christian, you should do so. God established churches to this end. We've covenanted together here in order to deal with our sins, in order to help each other deal with our sins, in order to help us get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every other form of malice. And we work to encourage each other to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. That's what Paul said in Ephesians 4. And that's why we try to live this out together like this as a church here as we deal with our sin. But most specifically, how did God finally deal with sin through sending his son? Well, sin was finally condemned by Christ's substitutionary death. Here we are in the middle of section of Romans about the new life we have in Christ. And what is at the middle of it? This understanding of Christ's death as substitutionary. You look there in verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned, that is God passed sentence on, he, he damned sin in sinful man. Now that last phrase, in sinful man, if you have an NIV, maybe don't do this with the pew Bibles, but if you're own, just cross that out. That's, the, the NIV does a singularly poor job of translating here. It's just in tesarche, in the flesh. That's what it says, in the flesh. And what that means, I think, is not in sinful man. That's going to mislead you, I fear. I think he's referring very clearly to the flesh of Jesus Christ. That's how God has condemned sin, in the flesh of Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the sentence, I think, where we see most clearly how God would deal with our sin through Jesus Christ. He came to do more than be an example. He came to teach. God would condemn sin in the flesh. In the flesh of Jesus, dying on the cross. God's sentence of condemnation on our sins was executed. God didn't just overlook sins. He's a good and just God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But he executed his condemnation on our sins on the cross, on Christ, not on us. It has been discharged. My non-Christian friend, this is what we Christians understand to be the basis of our hope, that there is now no condemnation for us. This is what we've been singing about already this morning. Did you notice these lines and these hymns and songs, suffering to give us life? Precious Lamb of God, Messiah, O for sinners slain. Many hands were raised to wound him, none would interpose to save, but the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrifice to cancel guilt. I hear the words of love, I gaze upon the blood, I see the mighty sacrifice, and I have peace with God. 
I change, he changes not. The Christ can never die. His love, not mine, the resting place. His truth, not mine, the tie. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, realize that God made you to know him. You sinned against him. He sent Christ to live a perfect life, die on the cross in the place of all of those who would repent of their sins and trust in him. And he calls you to do that now. Repent of your sin. Let go of them. What have they ever brought you? And take hold of Jesus Christ. Cast your life on him. If you find yourself wondering, well, I don't even really know how to do that. Pray. Ask him. Ask him to give you the gifts of repentance and of faith. Christ is our substitute. He's the substitute for all his people, regardless of our age or gender or nationality. So our commonality in Christ is sufficient for our fellowship together. As Christians, we should be marked by fully giving ourselves for God's purposes and our families and our jobs and our communities. Husbands, you know from Ephesians that Christ's substitutionary death is exactly the model Paul gives us for how we should love our wives. This love is the center of every celebration of the Lord's Supper, like the one we're going to have tonight. It's the center of every sermon, like this one. It's the center of every service. God condemned sin in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. So, do we live as those whom the Holy Spirit has freed from the bondage of sin? Here is a lengthy quotation from the late second century. This is fascinating. This is how Christians were described about a hundred years after the apostles. The difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is not a matter of nationality or language or customs. Christians do not live apart in separate cities of their own, speak any special dialect, nor practice any eccentric way of life. The doctrine they profess is not the invention of busy human minds and brains, nor are they like some adherents of this or that school of human thought. They pass their lives in whatever township, Greek or foreign, each man's lot has determined, and conform to ordinary local usage in their clothing, diet, and other habits. Nevertheless, the organization of their community does exhibit some features that are remarkable and even surprising. For instance, though they are residents at home in their own countries, their behavior there is more like that of transients. They take their full part as citizens, but they also submit to anything and everything as if they were aliens. For them, any foreign country is a motherland, and any motherland is a foreign country. Like other men, they marry and beget children, though they do not expose their infants. No infanticide, no abortion among the Christians. Any Christian is free to share his neighbor's table, but never his marriage bed. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, they do not live after the flesh. Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is above in the heavens. They obey the prescribed laws, but in their private lives they transcend the laws. They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned. Yet by suffering death, they are quickened into life. They are poor, yet making many rich, lacking all things, yet having all things in abundance. They are dishonored, yet made glorious in their very dishonor, slandered, yet vindicated. They repay calumny with blessings and abuse with courtesy. For the good they do, they suffer stripes as evildoers, and under the strokes they rejoice like men given new life. Friends, please don't think that I'm suggesting by this that Christians don't sin. We do sin. But if sin has been condemned, our penalty paid, our bondage broken, we do live a new life. We live a life that looks different. 
I like the way William Arnott put it. The difference between an unconverted and a converted man is not that the one has sins and the other has none, but that the one takes, his, takes part with his cherished sins against a dreaded God, and the other takes part with a reconciled God against his hated sins. Friend, whose side will you take? Those who have been set free by the Spirit live by the Spirit. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we pray for bondages to be broken this morning in the strong name of Jesus. We pray that you would give gifts of repentance and faith. Lord, to those of your children who are weak and fixing their hopes on the wrong things, we pray that you would kindly, Lord, show us the truth about ourselves and about you and then enliven our hearts with true trust in you. Renew our hope, we pray. Fill us with your spirit. Give us new life. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. You see the difference? I mean, it's like night and day. You have a pastor who's doing expository, Christ-centered, biblical preaching and, and makes a point of putting the gospel front and center. And it's, it, I mean, it, you know, nothing even comes close. Everything pales in comparison. It doesn't even, I mean, the, the other sermons, the so-called life tip uh, sermons, the so-called relevant to your life type sermons, they are completely powerless to really, uh, truly change people's lives. It's this kind of preaching that proclaims the word, that proclaims the gospel, that puts Christ and him crucified for our sins as the center and substance of, of the preaching that truly is what builds up, what edifies, what strengthens. What it, it, This is the stuff that really has the power Whereas uh, all of that other so-called relevant preaching, completely, completely powerless. So what do you think? Well, um, you can let me know what you think. Uh, send me an email. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, our third three-year anniversary for Pirate Christian Radio. May God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ. His vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.